Hello and welcome to Uncivilized Conversations. I'm your host, Gabriella, and this particular recording was actually created prior to the continued aggression toward the Asian community. So unfortunately, it is even more prevalent today than it was when I recorded it a couple weeks ago. And to those that are unsure or may not see the significance in things like false reporting and police brutality, the way that the media has portrayed the Asian community for a very long time, and you will hear in this podcast interview as well, just the tip of the iceberg, it's not new. And unfortunately, our country has this habit of instead of doing things preemptively to try and prevent those from being harmed, we wait until there's a certain amount of people hurt, a certain amount of deaths, and that whole structure needs to be broken down and rebuilt. Because the false propaganda that is our current state when it comes to journalism, when it comes to reporting, because we're so hell-bent on putting information out as quickly as possible, not only is it not efficient in the long run, but the inaccuracies, it is costing the Asian community their lives false reporting and not calling it what it is, anti-Asian hate crime. It's costing people their lives. So try and take a deep breath and hopefully you get some insight. And if you are a member of the Asian community, I hope this gives you a little bit of insight to know that you are not alone. However scared or fucking pissed you feel right now is completely valid. I just want to say a quick word to the entire Asian community out there. I see you. I love you. Enjoy. Okay, today we have a special guest, Patty. She is an entrepreneur, social activist, motorcyclist, and pretty much all around badass. Also one of my favorite human beings. Welcome, Patty, to Uncivilized Conversations. <laughs> how you doing thank you for having yeah. me how are you feeling today oh you know today was honestly a good day because I got to see my family it's always a good day when I get to see my niece she's definitely someone who just keeps me motivated in life so I always feel like I'm kind of recharging myself when I spend time with her kind of talking about celebrating those personal successes and personal accomplishments with everything going on in the world. How do you find that balance? Because I don't think I have one specific answer, but I know, you know, here are these personal successes or wonderful things that are happening personally, and then simultaneously just the everyday reality that is our world currently. <laughs> Honestly, every single day is a new challenge. I try to take life day by day, especially now 
I think that's all anybody can do, right? Because we're kind of living in this era of uncertainty. And I know it seems oversaid, it seems cliche, but we truly are in this era of not knowing what's going to happen from one day to the next. So I try to stay as present as possible. I try to stay as grounded as possible. And that is a lot easier said than done. But Honestly, it's my niece and my family that keeps me balanced. They're the ones that really keep me grounded. And I mean, even though the world is on fire, when I kind of tunnel vision on the potential of everything that's ahead of my niece, it gives me hope. And it really does motivate me to keep going. So that's kind of one of your coping mechanisms. Like, okay. We're gonna we're gonna go back to basics, go back to the root of the things that really bring you joy. Yeah, I would say socializing is definitely a coping mechanism. It's kind of a productive distraction in a sense. It enables me to kind of take my mind off of overanalyzing and obsessing over certain things. And I have the ability to just be present and just enjoy the company of people that I love. With my sister the other day too, is a lot of those coping mechanisms, like even coping mechanisms I've had that have to do with socialization that had initially been taken away due to the pandemic. So I was trying to grapple with the idea of where am I getting Mm -hmm. this from? And you know, I've, I've known countless people that if they're from another state or another country, like a lot of them have gone back to basics a little bit, you know, um, gone back to things they loved, gone back home and visited family. Mm -hmm. And just, I think as awful as so many things in this world are, I think we are really learning how to shift our awareness back and reprioritize those things that actually matter. Like, Oh, you know, maybe capitalism, Mm -hmm tricked me into thinking that I really needed to break my back working. And it's like, you know, these moments watching your niece grow up or my nephews or just like that time with your family is important, you know, whoever you may call your family. Definitely. And I think on the flip side too, a lot of people are being forced to identify what their priorities are. A lot of people have been kind of pushed into a corner during this time and they've really been forced to think about what is important to you, what does bring you joy, and what can you do during this strange pandemic life that can bring you joy, even though you can't maybe go out the way that we used to or do certain activities that you used to do. I think that fortunately... I have been able to find a lot of joy in mm-hmm. doing things independently. And unfortunately, there there's a large population of people that were never the type to do things alone. And so they had to learn or they are learning how to be comfortable doing things alone now. Continuing to hone that skill of, oh, wow, I have to sit with myself. Okay. <laughs> This is, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. It, it makes you face exactly. yourself in a way that's like, <laughs> oh man, okay, we're doing this. Um, and really giving us all, mm-hmm. yeah, like all yep. giving us time to heal. But, you know, it's it's like those memes that's like, 
okay, this is what healing looks like, or you think it does. It's all peaceful. And it's like, no, it's a fucking train wreck. Like it needs to be broken open. It's painful. <laughs> It's like, ow, what yeah. the fuck? Yeah. It's chaos. <laughs> like, what the fuck, dude? Seriously? Yeah. But yep. I think ultimately, you know, coming out, like there's no, you know, yep. I believe it. There's no back to normal. I think things need to break apart so we can rebuild from the ground up because there were a lot, of, a lot of things. Yeah. Um, I think too, I become more and more prevalent to me and come to my attention is with everything going on in the world, and I'm sure, you know, you, both you and I have touched on this, but the level of complacency that I see some people that apolitical or really kind of withdrawn from the conversation of the things going on in our world today, I think it's, you know, that's even more detrimental than being to one side because it's almost omitting yourself and predominantly people that have that privilege. They are taking themselves out of a conversation that not only needs to be had, but a situation that has been so wrong Mm -hmm. and broken really since the beginning. Um, Yeah. I I just think that's incredibly detrimental. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I I think that, we are witnessing complacency on a lot of different levels because politics aside, human rights aside, I'm witnessing a lot of people who have just been complacent within their own Mm -hmm. personal growth and their personal journeys. And it's really hard to witness certain peers in your life that used to sort of have this brightness about them pre-pandemic And now kind of seeing the way that the pandemic has affected them, you can really see that their light has been doled out. They no longer feel like themselves or seem like themselves because they're not able to find an identity without the things that they really held on to closely before pandemic has shut things down. And I I think we all know the type of people that really enjoyed going out to drink, really enjoyed going bar hopping and just being very public about their social activities. I'm seeing a lot of those types of peers that have now been very silent and they're not really talking about their mental health. They're not really sure how to go about even approaching the topic of mental health. And so I see them as being complacent within themselves because they're just kind of stagnant right now and they're not Mm -hmm able to develop in any direction. I see it as teaching an old dog new tricks. You know, I think it is possible, but part of it, it, it's a, it, there's, it's multifaceted Mm -hmm. because you know that a lot of those people, it trickles (laughs) downward, you know, what they were taught. Um, I fortunately grew up in an environment where Mm -hmm. mental health was something that we talked about often. Um, And I am also by nature, just a fucking loud mouth. So it doesn't, things don't stay in for very long. I'm like, let's talk about all of it, break it open. Um, But I think a lot of people are, you know, now they're identifying like, oh shit, not only do I have to sit with myself, but okay, I'm noticing what I've been doing, I can't keep doing, or it's not working. You know, there's something off and they're kind of stuck. You know, there needs to be some, they're at an impasse and there needs to be some sort Mm -hmm. of way to bridge that gap, you know? And I think a big 
contributing factors, the amount of resources we have, the fact that even though we talk about mental health more, I think there is still kind of a, a rosy glasses appearance to it or only talk about it until it's so serious. Um, and also the resources and it, you know, I think a lot of things within this pandemic, but mental health is definitely one. It's bringing up a very large classist issue in a lot of ways because mental health, you know, mental health for me, in my opinion, I right. think it should be free. Like everybody should have access to mental health care. That's not a luxury. Absolutely. I mean, all health care should be free. All not just should be free mental, and mental health. health care needs to be included into that. And I think, you know, if someone breaks their arm, they wear a cast, they take medicine. And I think it's harder for generations that haven't necessarily been taught or been ingrained to suppress those things. Um, Oh man, there's so much to unpack with what you just said. (laughs) There's so many layers to that. I mean, just going back to the whole like access, healthcare access, I mean, I think back to my very first corporate job after I graduated college and my health insurance from my employer included dental, vision, and PCP, but any sort of psychological care was considered a specialty service. So I did not qualify for mental health during my first job. Now, fast forward to 2020, 2021, mental health is something that is included, but I will never forget how difficult it was for me to learn that the first time I ever had health insurance when I graduated college through this job, I still didn't have access to therapy. Mm -hmm. I still didn't have access to a psychiatrist. And that was a really difficult pill to swallow because still in my early 20s, mental health was perceived as a luxury to me. Mm -hmm. You know, Growing up Asian American, mental health was not something that was even a concept that existed in my home. We never talked about it in the house. It's not something that was really seen as even being a real thing. Mm -hmm. So needless to say, it was difficult. I will still never forget the first time that I attempted to have a conversation with my mom about mental health. I was severely, severely depressed growing up, and I didn't have any outlet to release the sort of sadness that I was feeling inside. Mm -hmm. And so I got into a habit of journaling at a really young age. I always kept a journal, and that was kind of my way of mental health care, was sort of regurgitating my feelings into a diary and... That was just kind of what got me through up until my mid-20s when I actually had access to therapy. And it's giving me goosebumps thinking about it right now because it wasn't until last year that I found a therapist that worked for me. Mm. And for someone who has a minor in psychology and contemplated becoming a therapist, it's pretty wild that I, I myself didn't have access to it up until last year. And I think that goes to show how broken the American systems are and how stigmatized mental health still is in our society. Absolutely. And the fact, too, that, you know, even the fact that it took you until your early 20s to get mental health care up until that point, it was almost like, I think our generation growing up within our teens, they kind of 
I hate the term rebellious teenagers in so many ways. That's a whole other, I just think it kind of downplays the seriousness that someone goes through while they're going through literal, literal changes in their body. But a lot of it that I'm finding Mm -hmm. is, you know, that lack of validation, that the way you are feeling now we have words for it. Now there's verbiage in place. Now there are structures Mm -hmm. in place to have these coping mechanisms, you know, me learning about like, oh, anxiety. Um, And my sister and I also talked about medication and even therapy, psychiatry, psychology, how that was used to almost appease parents that were kind of annoyed with children, as opposed to looking into the research of what's going on with the child. Why are they feeling that way? What's bringing about these emotions and that you are validated. You as a developing mind, how you felt is valid, you know, and then taking Mm -hmm. that into adulthood and realizing I know this now, but that younger version of me needs that validation because I didn't get that, you know, and, and you journaled. Absolutely. I mean, it goes back to the whole idea of, you know, most people, most adults walking around the world are just hurt children. And a lot of our projections are a reflection of the things that we needed as children that we didn't get. And now as adults, those things still live within us. And so it does comes out. It just, you and I have both experienced this in friends and family members. Projections are a very real thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing because we all do it. it. That's what makes up our personality. We project certain things that are a result of something in the past that we experienced. And a lot of those projections are defense mechanisms because we don't want to get hurt again. We don't want to feel the same way that we did when a similar thing happened in our past. And it's it's almost oversimplified when you just come down to the concept of never get your feelings hurt because the way that people treat you is not a reflection of you, but it's a reflection of them. Well, that's easier said than done. (laughs) Exactly. That's something that I wish that I would have learned really early on that I, it didn't really click with me until later in life, but I wish someone would have told me that when I was younger, because it would have saved me a lot of heartache and tears (laughs) as a teenager. Yeah. But also, you know, like it depends too. There's some information where it took me a while to process and say, oh, that's what that was. You know, that's mm-hmm. now I, I can identify it. And it's like, you know, we have those anxiety pressures. Both you and I are um, products and children of immigrant parents as mm-hmm. well. I have the privilege of I am white, um, so I can pass in society. My mom is the only one out of her siblings that and she tried to make us more Americanized. She really worked to lose her accent. Um, and there wasn't as much of a language gap. But I think that added layer is also a huge component because there are a lot of other cultures that we see that come here because, you know, the American dream is you come here, you get work, you have a better life for the next generation, but it also puts a pressure on the next generation to succeed because you know what your parents had gone through so that you could have a better life. Have you ever felt, or do you feel that pressure at all or drive 
Absolutely. And man, I, I mean, this, this whole topic can, I can go so deep on because there are so many levels to why I feel like I feel generational pressure. It's not only the fact that my mother is an immigrant and she does not speak English fluently. She's not college educated. She truly came here for an opportunity to pursue a better life and start a family. And she immigrated to America during a time where it was post-Korean War. And what a lot of people don't realize is that Korea was considered a third war, third world country just up until not too long ago. Mm-hmm. And they're also known as the fastest developing country in the world. So where they are right now and where they were before my mom immigrated here the speed at which they have developed their country is truly mind-boggling. And there are documentaries that really display how the country was able to do this. But she really came from a sort of agricultural, bare minimum world into America during a time when Capitalism was booming, and I think that the culture shock that she experienced going from Korea post-war to America, that in itself was traumatic for her. Mm -hmm. She moved to a country where she didn't speak the language. There was still a lot of anti-Asian racism going on, and she just kind of had to figure it out by herself. That's kind of like the first step of her immigration story. And then There was another layer added, just the fact that she's a single mother of three. Mm -hmm. Her husband left her with three children in a foreign country. That in itself adds another layer of pressure. And I think that is something that often drives me. And it's something that has really turned me into the woman that I am today. Mm -hmm. I not only want to make sure that I'm not disappointing her as a daughter of an immigrant, but as the daughter of a woman who was an immigrant that had to raise three on her own. Finding a job as an immigrant is hard enough, but finding a job as an immigrant woman who is single is another thing. And that's something that not a lot of people talk about because there aren't a whole lot of Asian women who had to raise children on their own. And that's because culturally in East Asian cultures, it's unheard of to separate from your husband. It's unheard of to be a single parent, especially of three children. So she was just already in a very unique situation. And she has never made us feel like her being a single mother was something that we had to be aware of or as if we owed her for it. But you see it. Being a woman, a young woman growing up, seeing that, you can't help but to see yeah. it. Yeah, people see, you know, a woman, a single mother with three children. My mom is also a single mother with three children. And, you know, there's enough societal pressure from America, but a lot of people don't realize these other cultures even as America progressed and it became more acceptable to be divorced or to be single, these other cultures were not. My mom was ostracized for a very long time and that was unheard of. 
Um, and I, I know from what you have said, like Korean culture is the same. Um, and like Italian culture, they'll tell you if they're abusive, it doesn't matter. You stay, you know, I guess it's changed a little, but the old ways are still very prevalent today. Yeah. Unfortunately, Korean culture hasn't changed much. Uh, there are a lot of unhappy marriages and couples because in Korea, sexism is still very real. Mm -hmm. Gender roles are still being pushed onto women and men. And I think, again, the whole, the word complacency comes into play here too, because there are a lot of women who are unhappy in marriages and relationships, and they're just complacent because their culture says that they should just be happy and grateful for having a partner. And that is pretty much the only expectation. It's just a matter of find a partner, no matter un how unhappy you are, just make it work. Yeah. And that's also the standard. It's almost like fear mongering. Like you can't make it on your own. You need to be in a relationship and scares them and they don't know any different. Right. Yeah. And if you don't find a partner early on in your life, you start getting questions of, well, what's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. What about you is not desirable? And trying to find reasons why you are single because it's not a thing to choose to be single. Yeah. And it it's really unfortunate that there are a lot of women who are kind of stuck in this pressure that... Asian society is putting onto them. And fortunately, I live here in America. And fortunately, I'm Asian American. So I think that I'm really lucky to be growing up here because obviously feminism is a thing here. And I have other women in my life who also kind of believe in the same things I do and would support the decision to choose to be single. I don't have friends coming to me asking why I don't have a boyfriend or asking why I'm not dateable. Whereas if I was growing up in Korea, I would have friends coming to me asking those questions. Constantly. And that's a very, very big difference. Yeah. yeah. Constantly. I constantly got asked, one, they assume you're straight. Two, like, because anything else is just, you don't talk about that. And two, being like, well, you're yep. so pretty. Why don't you? It's like, there's so many things wrong with that. <laughs> not yep um for those who have been living under a rock and have no idea apparently what's going on would you like to fill the audience in a little bit on what's been going on in regards to asian hate crime within america and as of late sure <laughs> <laughs> that that's a whole lot to unpack too um and to no I mean, anti-Asian racism is something that has existed forever. It's not new. It's not new, but a lot of people are just now learning about it, which is extremely devastating and concerning as an Asian woman who has been experiencing anti-Asian racism since my childhood. I think that there are a lot of things that are at play here. For one... As of recently, anti-Asian hate crimes have been increased due to the pandemic. Due to politics last year, there was a rhetoric being thrown around about the pandemic being because of people in China. 
There were these false narratives being thrown around saying that Asian people were bringing the pandemic over to the country. And there was just blind, there were just blind blame games being thrown around. And unfortunately, Trump's rhetoric of China virus really changed everything for Asian American communities. I, very early on, starting last March, I heard coworkers throwing around the term Kung Flu and laughing about it. And they thought it was funny, but obviously they didn't realize that that type of rhetoric is extremely damaging and it is racist. And I think... They didn't realize that. Of course they didn't realize it or else they wouldn't have said it to my face. I think what the issue right I think the issue right now is that American media is not covering these hate crimes against Asian communities. So a lot of people don't know about it. And it's it gives me the chills to think about because this is something similar that happened when Trump won presidency. When mm-hmm. Trump won his first term of presidency, the media failed to take his campaign seriously, so they never really covered what he was doing in depth. And so a lot of people assumed, well, he would never win. He's not going to win. I don't need to pay attention. I don't need to vote. It's fine. It's just a joke. Fast forward to now, all the media reporters that were responsible for covering his campaign feel deep, deep regret because... Mm-hmm. They admitted that they should have taken it more seriously and they should have encouraged people to vote. It's something similar going on right now. A lot of Asian American communities are trying to push the media to cover these stories, but unfortunately they don't consider them as hate crimes because there's not quote unquote enough proof that they were racially charged attacks against Asians. It's really frustrating. Absurd. Yeah. Right. It's really frustrating that there are thousands and thousands of attacks being reported and the media is still not recognizing them as hate crimes. But this is the epitome of being an Asian American living in the U.S. Mm-hmm. We live in the shadows. We're not taken seriously. We're constantly told that racism isn't real for us. We're constantly told that we're not minority enough for people to care about us, to advocate for us. and. The Asian American story is truly a story where we feel things, but we're constantly invalidated and pushed into the darkness. And even now, the only people that I'm seeing advocating for any sort of cause to stop hate crimes against Asians are my Asian peers. I have yet to see a non-Asian peer post anything about advocating for Asian American communities. I have yet to have any non-Asian friend reach out to me and just ask me how I am, ask me how my mom is. And that's been really disappointing because that's not how they were when the BLM movement was going on. And I'm not trying to discredit BLM. I'm not saying that it's the same thing, but it's just really disappointing that I had so many peers who were advocating for BLM when it was trending. And now that they have another opportunity to support another minority group, they're absent. So I can't help but to question if their advocacy was genuine or not. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's a huge thing that I'm seeing moving forward because the fact that you have to sift through, and that's why I say if people are living under a rock, 
you know, how do you not see continual hate crime happening on behalf of the Asian community time and time again? And they've been pushed to the side, you know, and it's frustrating to see people that often call themselves activists or really want to make a change or work on racism. And it's like, if you haven't already been doing that work, not only to your Black peers, but also your Asian American peers, like you're not doing the work, you know? And I think the big issue too is these people have always been there. These belief systems have always been there. We are all victims. We have all done racist things. I have done racist things. I am a product of a racist society that I need to unlearn these things. But by Trump making it a joke, by different people in power that have that privilege and that voice, what they did was unlock a door and made it acceptable for those people to show their fangs, those people that always had those racist beliefs to proceed Mm -hmm. with the indication that there would be no repercussions for their actions. And we are seeing that in living time now, especially with anti-Asian or with hate crimes within the Asian community. And yeah, that it's, I, I think it speaks volumes when mainstream media outlets are again supporting this false narrative by saying oh you know COVID-19 has ignited new anti-Asian racism or due to the pandemic Asian communities are now experiencing racism this is perpetuating the model minority myth this is perpetuating the Asian American experience which is that we're ignored we're dismissed and we're constantly invalidated and mainstream media is just perpetuating all of this. And so right now, what our communities are trying to do is we're trying to get people to sign petitions to push for these outlets to actually cover these stories as hate crimes. As of now, there hasn't been much movement. There's no progress on it. And who knows if there ever will be. But that's unfortunately all I can do for my people right now is try to push for the media to cover for it. But Other than that, there's not much else we can do because right now authorities are saying that there isn't enough evidence to deem these as hate crimes. So we're just sharing stories. We're trying to make sure that non-Asian people are aware of what's happening. And I think the message that I always try to share with people is that this is happening constantly. It's happening every day, all day, in multiple cities across the world now, not only in the U.S. It's now expanding to multiple other countries in the world. And unfortunately, you don't have to live under, the, uh, live under a rock to not know what's going on. You just have to be someone who's not following activism and allyship to not know what's going on. I have a very close friend of mine who is very involved in activism and she wasn't even aware. It's just the fact that this is how our technological algorithms work. Unless you're looking for the information, you're not going to see it. So I don't blame people for not seeing this information. I just feel frustrated that we have systems put into place that make it so difficult to share important information. Yeah. With new, with new faces. That's, that's absolutely huge. And a big part of it too is because I had seen 
a lot of the hate crimes against the Asian community. And I had seen it circulating on Instagram. And I, that's a very good point because I do follow people that are activists, but my thought was, okay, now what? So like you were saying, putting those things into place, implementing, you know, either protests or implementing and signing petitions and things like that, implementing actual change. That's what I want to see moving forward is as a society, we all need to step up and do better and not just be performative. You know, when Mulan on stage came out, my frustration, and I think that was either before pandemic, like right before pandemic, but everybody was very excited because there was a large percentage of Asian actors and actresses. And one, it's Mulan, it should be. But two, after doing more in-depth research, the problem is that that was such a performative thing to appease the masses of, look, we're trying to be more cultured and different, yet the directors, the choreographers, the people behind the camera, still the vast majority of them are white or non-Asian working on this film that is one of the most well-known Asian. Same thing with the animated version. The yeah. animated version oh, was not any better. And I mean, and now we're, well, well, now we're getting into the whole territory of like Walt Disney, because they straight up appropriated many cultures to create Pocahontas, Absolutely. Mulan, Princess and the Frog, all the above. And as a kid, Mulan was the only animated film I could watch where I felt like I was represented. And that's something that I always felt from a very young age. I want to say as early as three years old, I noticed that I didn't have toys that looked like me. I wasn't reading books with characters that looked like me. They were all white. They had white skin. They didn't have eyes like mine. They didn't have tan golden skin like mine. I was never reading a story about an Asian girl, an Asian family. I was always reading about a girl in America with white skin. Yeah. And when we want... And when Mulan came out, that was really special for me because that was the first time that I saw a sort of mainstream movie, let alone a sort of Disney princess, and she was a warrior and she was Asian. That was something that was really special to me. And growing up now and seeing this live action version of Mulan, there's just so much to unpack there. I mean, I studied digital media and cinema for my bachelor's degree, and I studied the ethics of media, and I really dove deep into similar concepts that we're talking about right now. And the one thing about the Mulan release that really angered me was the fact that they had the audacity to release it without Asian subtitles. Really? Disney has literally made a movie about an Asian warrior, and they failed to release Asian subtitles. That to me is the epitome of cultural appropriation. They completely excluded the Asian community while using their story to make millions of dollars off of this story. That's insane. So cast aside, that is what infuriates me because you're making the story about an Asian character, but you're making it inaccessible to Asian communities. Mm. Yeah. And then now fast forwarding to 2021, uh, Minari is they're getting Golden Globes is getting a lot of backlash, rightfully so, for yes. instead of so, which is so incredibly frustrating because 
as we were talking about immigrant family, that is the most American dream. Like that is you move to this country from another country for a better life to create a life for them. And their mediocre excuse was because they often use subtitles because they spoke Korean, even though it was in America, based in America and an American story. So they put them in the foreign film category instead. And just to note, Inglorious Bastards, the majority of that movie is not in English. Yes, absolutely. And I think a lot of people fail to compare the sort of praised American cinematic pieces that have gotten awards and attention. And it's it really goes back to the Asian American experience. There's always an excuse why... Asians cannot be included. There's always a reason why Asians aren't something enough to be put into the pool with everybody else. And especially a film like Minari, it was made by a team of people who understood the Asian American experience and what it was like to live in America under the umbrella of immigrant parents. And it's disappointing but at the same time, not surprising because I studied Hollywood cinema and I know that Hollywood cinema is deeply white supremacist and it doesn't take an expert to look at who is kind of running the show and seeing that it's they're all white. Everybody who is voting to actually cast these awards and nominations out, they're all white. There is no representation. There is no diversity. They fail to be inclusive. Yeah. And it really is on a larger scale when I know some people from small towns and they're speaking on behalf of, oh, systemic racism isn't real. It's like, well, you come from a town of all white and kind of sexist, kind of racist, and your community is white. Everyone around you is white. That is the epitome of systemic racism. The fact that you do not see diversity, the fact that there are lines put in place, the fact that, you know, people of different races are treated differently and put in different places. And there are places where only white people exist. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that on such a larger scale. And I think that's a huge thing when, you know, whether reading a book or watching a movie a big part of it, we're seeing all these awards. And the real question is, why the fuck do I care about these awards if they're given by people that have a very limited viewpoint? Like Mm -hmm. those roles, those seats need to change. You know, the Mm -hmm. writing, the writer's room needs to change. I want to see that on every level, not just what I see across the screen. And I even spoke on behalf of like in our book club, a lot of people that are not white have spoken about reading books and automatically assuming they're white because growing up in the curriculum, it is predominantly written by white, predominantly male Mm -hmm. authors. And then on top of it, they would only identify or talk about the race if they were not white. Mm Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until you grow up, you get older and realize I need to change my representation. <laughs> that's or definitely like, something that, and that's something that I noticed too. Um, as, as young as kindergarten, 
it was it started with picture books and movies that you watch in school and not seeing representation and then growing up and going into high school and college where still the literature it was still from the perspective of white people and I have never in my life, in my academic life, been assigned to read literature that was written by an Asian person. And I, I'm hoping that that is one aspect in American education that could evolve moving forward. I'd like to think that younger generation of teachers that are entering their careers in the public school system are kind of installing more diverse and inclusive literature for their students. Mm. But that's definitely not something that I had. It's something that I definitely looked for. And even something as simple as watching cartoons in grade school, there was just such a lack of representation and a constant reinforcement of feeling like an outsider. Yeah. Which again is an extra level of mental health that I don't, not only is it not validated, but especially if you are in a community that is very few of the population is Asian American, how do you go to your teacher and try and explain this experience that might be foreign to them? Mm-hmm. And it's it makes you almost have to grow up and be an adult much earlier than you should. Exactly. Which is not fair. <laughs> Exactly. Not doing that to young children. Yep. It's awful. It's just like, yeah, just sit with this. That's fine. You'll tell your therapist about me 20 years later. Yeah, <laughs> we assume that children are too young to notice certain things or as if children are just too young, period. I think that adultism and ageism is a real thing. We need to stop yeah. babying children. Children are just human. That's it. We don't need to talk to them in a certain tone. We don't need to dumb down conversations with them. They are conscious enough to understand what they're feeling and what they're seeing around them in the world. And when you grow up as a minority child and you look around in the classroom and you're the only one that looks the way that you do, you can definitely have an understanding for certain concepts and conversations that need to be had. I think that parents now in this generation have a lot of pressure on them because we can now call them out on their shit. We can now tell them, no, you know what? If children are young enough to experience racism, they can certainly learn about racism and how to be anti-racist. Absolutely. And that's a big part of it is that, again, level of complacency of, oh, let's just be quiet. And this is this thing we don't talk about. It's like, well, if you don't talk about it, we don't evolve. Exactly. We don't learn. And until the next generation does that, we're not going, you know, and I think healthy conflict is such a healthy thing, even within generational, like, you know, my mom, there's discussions that my mom and I have had that, maybe not even seen eye to eye or things that just I've shown a new perspective just as she has learned from me. I think it's, I really wished growing up, I would see more of that in pop culture and media that, you know, healthy dynamic, healthy conflict is actually vital to an ever evolving relationship, you know, whatever the dynamic may be. And the fact that hey, this is a thing I've discovered. This is something that I want to talk about, you know, or are you talking about mental health 
with your mom or with siblings. I think, you know, you don't have to see eye to eye, but that understanding that I have people that hold me accountable and I want to also hold the people I love accountable because I, I love them enough and believe in them enough to be like, Hey, I would like you to evolve as well. You know, and that's friendships like yours and mine have evolved because of these conversations. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I think what makes our friendship so special on that note is the fact that we both are mental health warriors. We both advocate for mental health and we're very open about it. And we're so passionate about destigmatizing it and normalizing it and that's something that not a lot of people in general really have. And so to have that in a very close childhood friendship is something that's really unique. And to your point, it's enabled us to be able to grow together side by side. And, you know, I've always admired the way that you and your family, especially your mom, have been able to discuss mental health and how encouraging you guys are towards one of one another. That's something that I am still in the process of building in my family right now. And Mm -hmm. there are a lot of cultural barriers that are kind of standing in the way. So I'm being patient. I'm taking it day by day, but I am really proud of the progress that I've made with my own mom. And She has grown in so many ways, and I really have challenged her and tested her patience so much, and I am just really proud to know that she finally has an understanding that mental health care is just as important as any other health care, and there is value in just having a mental health check, whether you feel like you have a quote-unquote issue or concern, I think that through my discussions with her, she's learned that not everybody is qualified to have certain conversations with you. Certain conversations are meant to be had with a professional who has been vetted and trained to listen to certain types of thoughts. And I think that she has learned that the way that people react to certain things can be damaging. So there's value in speaking to the right person about certain things. Yeah. Creating safe spaces is huge, you know, and I do create safe spaces for people in my life, but therapy, and that's the thing I I've talked to everybody from, you know, I've talked to Lyft drivers about this where they're like, well, you know, what's wrong or something has to be wrong. And I'm like, well, we're seeing this on a global scale right now. If we were preemptive about things mm-hmm. instead of waiting until a certain amount of deaths or a certain amount of crime toward a group, if we were preemptive and didn't wait until things got worse, there's a reason why therapy is stigmatized. It's because we wait until everything explodes mm-hmm. and shit hits the fan. And it's like, well, yes, dude. Why don't Thank we you. just go? Exactly. Like it's supposed to be a continuous process, and I think having these conversations, which for people listening, you know, it's not all roses and daisies. I love my mom to the point where it hurts, but man, her and I fight. You know, it's not. It's again, of it's course. conflict, um, but it's also those conversations that you and I have with several, like that's generational trauma being healed. 
that's so fucking important and so monumental, you know, and also understanding that we're able to have those conversations with our parents. I know people that have had to come to terms with the fact that, okay, there are certain things that I believe in fundamentally that they will not see eye to eye on or never see it the same way as me. And that's tough, but that's also like, okay, that's something I need to come to terms with, you know, and that's, that Mm -hmm. can be extremely difficult because you're like, I want you to grow. And sometimes seeing people you love or care about, or even that come in and out of your life, you have to put that down and say, okay, you're not where I am. And that's okay. That's not my work. Like that is my, that is my biggest mantra takeaway from the shit I've been through in unhealthy dynamics. Like that's not my work. <laughs> it's so not my work. That, that's something that I am constantly trying to remind myself of. I have the personality of a savior. I am always out trying to save people. I'm always just <laughs> thinking that I need to be the one to save the fucking day. And I need to remind myself that it is not my work. I need to remind myself that there are just certain things and certain people that I do not have the power to impact. And that's okay. Because to your point, it's not your work. (laughs) And again, like growing an evolutionary process, it is not linear. I do not say that as oh, a, that is a golden no, rule that I all the time. It's like, no, I backslide nope. hard. Nope. <laughs> it's like a giant hairball. I mean, it is. healing is definitely not a linear journey in itself. It's a lot of unexpected twists and turns of emotions, but you got to feel it in order to heal it. Yeah. Absolutely. That's, yes, all of it, all of it. And it's, I think, and that's the thing too, is like, I am a pretty happy go lucky person, but sometimes people, you know, the more I open up about mental health and stigmas, they're like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm the most genuinely happy I've ever been because I talk about when I'm not, you know, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Like, stop trying to make people happy for you so that you feel comfortable Like if my unhappiness currently makes you feel uncomfortable because the world's on fire, that's not my fault. That's not my, that's not my work and my responsibility to appease the masses or to kind of work as a self for someone that's not ready to face the current reality that we are all feeling and those crushing pressures or issues going on within the world. But yeah, no. Yes, you can say that again. (laughs) One more time for the people in the back. Um, I will say though, say it louder. Say it louder. (laughs) I will say though. um, So moving forward, I mean, you've done such an awesome job within your activism as an entrepreneur within the cannabis world too. I I feel part of what we were talking about. You have taken the responsibility of here's something that I really care about, not just as a childish feat, but something you believe in as part of mental health, as part of medicine, and taking that part, taking it upon yourself to explain and take the time to break it down, the importance of it to your family and make them realize, hey, Mm -hmm. I really have a passion for this. This is important. So it is my duty and responsibility to educate you. 
Yes, I I sort of had a coming out moment with my career in cannabis. I guess I should start by saying, you know, cannabis in Korea and in Korean culture, it is just perceived as a drug. Um, drugs and substance use at a moderate level is not something that exists in Korean culture. As a matter of fact, if you get caught with any substance in Korea, you're automatically going to get sent to prison. And that's just how criminalized it is. Yes, still. It's not a thing for kids growing up in Korea to experiment with drugs. It's just, it doesn't exist there. That's not something that you see in Korean media like you do in Hollywood media. You know, for example, like Project X. You would never see content like that in Korean culture because kids aren't throwing parties and doing drugs and, you know, doing all sorts of things. That's just not something that they have access to. Um, I think alcohol consumption is a huge part of Korean culture and they're one of the largest consuming countries in the world of alcohol. But considering that it's way more damaging effects on the body. <laughs> yes. But approaching the conversation with my family, more specifically my mom, and having to strategize the best way to have this conversation on cannabis with her was really difficult. And she, I know that she will admit this today and she wouldn't admit it back, back then, but it took me years for her to take me seriously. And it wasn't until she saw my picture on the cover of the Chicago Sun-Times that she, that she took my career seriously. Obviously, in that moment, I was proud. But at the same time, I was heartbroken. Because and at that time... So much work. Yes, because at that point, I was already four years into my career. Wow. At that At that point, I had already achieved so much. But because she wasn't seeing it, it didn't seem real to her. And I am so thankful that she has now become an advocate of cannabis because I have watched documentaries with her. I've educated her on the clinical use of cannabis and how beneficial it is for patients and especially adolescent patients. She was mind blown when I showed her her first documentary about CBD for adolescent kids. Because the moment that she saw the video of a child having an epileptic seizure and having it stop within 30 seconds due to cannabis, that forever changed her mind about it. And I'm so happy for that moment because after that, I was able to watch more comedic content with her like Pineapple Express. And (laughs) she didn't look at Pineapple Express as like, oh, they're criminals, they're just getting stoned and they're wasting their life away. She was able to laugh with me because she finally gets it now. Yeah. And I would have never imagined that she would be where she is right now. And I have even had Asian peers reach out to me and ask me if I've told my mom about my job and how I talked to her about it. And I've told them, of course she knows She's one of my biggest supporters now, and she's an advocate of medical cannabis, in fact. And their mind has a glitch because 
they could never imagine themselves having that conversation with their Korean parents. So I feel I feel so fortunate to have a mother who is open-minded and understanding when she receives new information because I have so many peers who would never be able to have that conversation with theirs. Yeah. And part of it is, I mean, you are a pioneer. So <laughs> thank you. For the next absolutely, absolutely. Well, Patty, this has been an absolute treasure. I'm so happy that I was able to get on here and talk with you. Likewise. Thank you so much. I, I love you. It. I love you too. And to all of you out there, we love you guys. Love y'all. Educate yourself. <laughs> Stay safe.